text this morning is found in the 55th chapter of Isaiah. It is printed for you in your program, in your order of worship. Um, Turn there, find it, uh, read along with me as I read aloud, uh, and stand together as we hear the uh, word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen. Diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander. For the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall. My word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. This is God's word. It's abundantly and absolutely true, and it is given to you this day in love. Let's pray. Father, you have promised that in you and you alone is satisfaction. Streams of water that satisfy thirst and bread of life that satisfies hunger. Show us that today for your glory and our good. Amen. Be seated. Some sermons are declarative. All of it's declarative in that we're declaring things that are true about God. Within the context of the text itself, there is an invitation. Sometimes there is an invitation simply to listen and to be reminded of true things. And that certainly is the case here. 
But one of the things that's happening in this text is a question. And a lot of us aren't comfortable with answering questions because questions make us go uh, to places that are sensitive and force us to, um, to maybe look at some things that we would rather as soon forget than remember. The question is, are you satisfied? That was given away by the sermon title. The real question is, how are you doing? And I'm not asking this um, because I'm about to fly off and make some sort of really profound point. I'm asking you this as a friend as a, and as a brother in Christ. How are you doing? Um, is, is this whole thing working for you? And, and, and that question isn't um, to get you to say, oh, yes, everything the church does is perfect and it's working for me 100%. That's not where I'm going with that. Because there's, all, of course, a lot of things that we, we really would love to look at and address and change and make work better for us. Um, but it is kind of a gut check. How, are you do- How is this thing with you and God doing? I mean, you hear, we, we, we love, I mean, I, I had Billy load the liturgy up today with all sorts of profound statements of satisfaction and joy and, and come you sinners, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all, right? How did that land on you? Did you feel like, yes, I am living in this right now and I'm participating in this right now and it's awesome? Or are you going, I don't feel any connection to this whatsoever? This isn't coming at you from a place of there's a right or a wrong answer. This isn't coming at you from a place of, well, you should feel happy, darn it all. Because that's not helpful. The reason that I'm asking the question is the same reason that the prophet Isaiah, um, as the mouthpiece of the Lord, was declaring things. Um, It's recognizing that we all are built in with desires. Those desires are prone to go askew. And when those desires go askew, we start planting ourselves in places called good enough. So I'm always fascinated um, by the uh, nature of survival shows. Um, you know, there's the, there's, the, there's the original one, Survivor, which is part game show and, and part um, get rained on a lot. And then there's the other, they kind of had to amp that thing up, and so people started um, losing clothing and uh, hospitable environments and, and naked and afraid. Um, which again takes me to all sorts of uncomfortable, like I don't, nothing about that seems like anything that I would ever, ever do. In all these situations, here's what ends up happening. All of a sudden, hunger becomes so real and thirst becomes so real and fatigue becomes so real that you just have to start looking for what's good enough. Where are we going to make camp that's going to keep us out of the most amount of flood water or that's going to keep us out of the most amount of bugs? <laughs> or keep us out of the most amount of rain. And it's not because this is where I would choose to stay if I had my druthers. It's because I'm exhausted and I've got to plant down somewhere. And I feel like that's where we get to, don't we? I feel like as a people, we often get to these places where I'm exhausted and I'm really hungry and I'm really thirsty and I can't seem to get um, satisfaction. I was trying to not make that song reference. 
Can we edit that off of the sermon track? We plant down in good enough. Here's the problem with good enough. It's not. The problem with good enough is that it's not. And we weren't made for survival. We were made to thrive. And we weren't made to live in isolation. We were made to live in community. And so it's good and it's healthy for us to ask every now and again, how are we doing? Am I connecting deeply with God and finding that I'm satisfied in him and him alone? And am I deeply connecting with God's people and finding joy uh, that I am incomplete without the people of God in my life? Or does it all just sound so exhausting? Because we've just run out of gas. See, the reason I think that hospitality is important is because I think that we've completely lost the biblical picture of what hospitality is. I'm not even going to give you. I'm not even going to give you a full definition of what it is this week. That's why it's a six-week series, not a one-week series. I'm not going to give you the full definition today because I think that if I give you the full definition of it today, you're going to look at it and they go, "I can't do that. I'm too exhausted. I give up." Because we go into task mode. We automatically think that it's one more thing to add to our lives. It's one more task to take on and do. It's one more thing to cram into a schedule that's already way too full. And it's not. But that's only symptomatic. For a lot of us, the question, how are you doing, goes way deeper than my schedule's, my schedule's too full and my life is too busy and my, li- my house is a mess and my kids are chaotic and I barely have a moment to breathe. For many of us, it runs far deeper than that. And it's sometimes I don't even know if my faith is real. And sometimes I don't even know if God hears my prayer, let alone answers my prayer. And I know what I'm supposed to believe, but sometimes, sometimes I forget. How are you doing? Do you believe Do you honestly believe that what we've just read in the text is true and that God is is actually looking at you, sees that you are a person with desire, sees that you want satisfaction and is going to actually do that? What is satisfaction? I think we can define it. um, We can define it, first of all, by what it's not. Um, if you'll permit me, just a few examples, and then I want to get right into the, to the text. We live in a, in a time and a place that is uh, being seen by many, both historians, sociologists, um, and, and those that deal in kind of how societies and cultures move at a truly exceptional time. Everybody says it's exceptional. This one really is, because it's moving so fast, we don't quite know what to call it, because as soon as we've called it something, it's turned into something else. That's new. Normally, these movements happen in, lot, in, in bigger chunks. 
here's what it's doing. Instead of living in an agrarian culture or we're in a place where we are uh, living among our families and extended families, among grandparents and, and great-grandparents, instead of living uh, and working in a vocation where we uh, start the job that we were uh, destined to do vocationally at age 18 and work that job until we retire, um, instead of um, being in a place where the only way we could communicate with one another was via face-to-face interaction or some sort of, of handwritten form of communication. Everything is moving in a direction now that is, uh, that's making things much more instant- instantaneous and much more isolating. Everything. Every single thing that you do. Now, instead of, wait, instead of going to a movie theater and sitting silently among a room of people, you wait until it's out on Netflix and you sit in the quiet of your home. Now we can edit our words on text messaging and email. We don't have to deal with that awkwardness of face-to-face conversation and read other people's body language and facial expression. Now we can edit ourselves for just the right sentence. Forget just the right sentence. Now we can edit ourselves for just the right picture. Never mind taking it on a Kodak camera, dropping it off at the little hut on the side of the road, getting your pictures back a week later and going, oh, that's what that looked like. Now we see it on the screen. Now we instantaneously edit. What it does is it simultaneously paints a picture of a life that is impossible to attain and live and makes everyone else who knows what's going on on the other side of that camera feel incredibly isolated and alone. And in the church, it is no better. Rather than living in a, rather than living in a, uh, in a town where everybody goes to the same uh, household of worship, we now live in a place where we have toll tags and cars and time and choices. And we can go where we want, and we can see who we want. And it's incredibly isolating. It makes us feel incredibly alone. How many of you have tried to actually get to know your neighbor? If you, in your subdivision, what we have found, that what we found in our subdivision is that in our neighborhood, um, no one comes out of their house, Ever. I'm fairly certain that someone's invented teleportation and didn't tell me. No one comes out of their house. We have a community mailbox on our street. And people, like, if I see them coming out to the mailbox, I'll actually time my sprint to get to the mailbox, and they'll sprint back to their house. We were made, and, and I, I want you to hear me, we were made for community both with God and with one another, and part of what happened in the fall is we lost it all. That fundamental linkage, that fundamental relationship between us and God was broken. And so, in the hope of, of redemption, in the, reho- in the hope of the renewal of all things, we see now the prophet Isaiah coming and declaring good news, coming and declaring hope, coming with the eyes towards the day that the promised one of Israel would come and free God's people from all of their sin and sadness and sorrow. We see the promise of that day coming, and the promise is, is, is meted out with a question. Why do you spend your money? Why do you subsist in these things that will not satisfy? And why is it important that we answer these questions? Because when you, the moment that we reduce salvation to a mere uh, intellectual, okay, that's cool, I'm with that. Some things happened, some sins were pardoned, 
Now what? But we don't deal with it. When we don't deal with it at the heart level of desire, um, we're setting ourselves up for a world of hurt. In verse 3, um, all these things are being asked um, here that your soul may live. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. All the stuff that we're doing in our lives, there is absolutely no such thing as a separation between our spiritual life and our everyday life. Everything has to do with everything. There is not one and the other. It is one or the other. It is either life lived in the spirit or it is not. And so dealing with our desire, the question is here, that your soul may live, incline your ear. That's the point. The questions, come, everyone who thirsts, are you thirsty? Come, come to the waters. And he who has no money, can you not afford the good stuff? Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend what little you have on all the stuff that's never gonna satisfy It's an exposing statement when you think about it. Forget the food that we eat. Did you know that uh, right now studies have shown that families share a meal together on average only two to three times a week? And even then, they're about 20-minute um, fuel-up times. Most of our meals are spent in isolation and they're they're food as fuel, not food as feast. It's just something to do to get us on to the next thing. He's saying, come. Do you want to know why you're dissatisfied? Because you're eating the wrong stuff. And you're drinking the wrong stuff. And you think it's because you can't afford it. But I'm saying, of course you can't afford it. Come anyway. This text is showing us that life is not equal to subsistence. But life is rooted and designed to be in satisfaction. What is that satisfaction? That we would be fully known and fully loved, right? I was talking with some of you um, a week or so ago about this. Um, our deepest fears are, are uh, that we could be both fully known and fully loved um, because a lot of times we feel like we have to trade one or the other. Here's how that works. Um, my fear is that I would be loved but not known, okay? I put on church face. I say the right things. I do the right things. I answer the right questions in the right way. I have the right bumper stickers on my car. I send my kids to the right school. I would be known. I would be loved but not known, right? You love a version of me, but you don't love me. Here's the flip side of it. If I let you know the real me, you wouldn't love me anymore. If you knew all of my gross habits and all of my inconsistent ways, if you knew how I actually lived inside of my head, if you knew how I actually thought about things, you wouldn't love me anymore. So I have to keep pretending that I'm a likable version of me so that you'll actually like me. What's that rooted in? That's rooted in how we were designed. We were designed to be both fully known and fully loved, and we lost that. And now there's the trade-off. We feel like we can either get one or the other. 
what leads to a lot of problems in marriages, by the way. We want to be both truly known and truly loved. And then 10 years happens, 20 years happens, and we find out this isn't the same person I married. What's happening? That's another sermon for another day. He goes on and he says, uh, behold, I have made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander. Uh, He's going off of verse 3 in this this steadfast, sure love for David. I'll make you an everlasting covenant. I'm going to remember my promises. I'm going to keep my promises. So says the Lord. Uh, We talked in the worship class earlier today about the reason that we we stand during uh, during the assurance of pardon after a prayer of confession because the prayer of confession is, is, is bowing with heads down and eyes closed of all the ways in which we have failed God. We stand to hear the declaration of the gospel and the good news of all the ways that God has not failed us. And what God is saying here in verses 3 and 4 is that you come, you come back to me, and I won't forget my promises, and I'm going to keep my promises, and I'm going to invite you to come back, and I'm going to, I'm going to remember the covenant that I made with, with my servant David, that I will be your God, and you will be my people. Verse 6. So satisfaction is to be fully known and fully loved and that, that, that our soul may drink and feed deeply there. Where it's found, verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This idea of satisfaction cannot be found apart from the Lord. We cannot be found. We cannot have satisfaction apart from him. And the problem is we forget that because we get impatient. So think about this. We believe that God is triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? We believe that out of creation, that this, this triunity, this perfect communion of Father, Son, and Spirit always existed. Here's why that's important. If God were just this, um, if God were just the source of power in the universe, when He created everything, He would have created the whole world as a display of His what? Power. In creating you and I, it would have been a display of His what? Power. In demanding that we worship and obey Him, it would be a display of His what? You got the pattern there. And a lot of people, that's their view of God, right? That God is just this powerful ogre who wants my worship, who's demanding it on this power trip. But God in triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in mutual love, service, and affection for one another. Creation does not overflow as a, as a display of power, but as a display of love. Did God need our worship? No. Was anything deficient in God before he created everything? No. Was he lacking in anything? What did he do then? He created us out of an overflow of love and invited us into the dance of heaven. And so creation is an act of love. 
bringing us in to share in the union of Father, Son, and Spirit is an act of love. When we talk about satisfaction being found in him, that is a, that is a, that is a declaration of love. And there's also a declaration that we are prone to forget that all of the time. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? So that God can scold him, tell him what a terrible job he did, wag his finger and say, again, really, you this time? Return to the Lord, why? So that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Nothing else is going to give you that. Not your marriage, not your job, not your car, not your house, not your kids, not your vacation. Nothing else is going to give you that. Nothing else is going to give you the fullness that God said he alone can give. All those things will demand your love and affection, by the way. But they won't save you. They won't pardon you. They won't free you from their tyranny. They just want more. Verses 8 and 9 is another one of those places where Scripture is cause me to wince because if the invitation is to stop spending my money on that which does not satisfy and the implication that I perpetually am not satisfied, what does that mean? I am spending my money on things that does not satisfy. I'm a forgetful person. Do you know why I'm a forgetful person? Here's why. My messed up wisdom doesn't land me in the, in the right spot. Like when you ask me, make a decision, I will make the wrong one. Nearly all the time. I will, make a, I will make the wrong decision if I'm just applying my wisdom to it. Because God has said that he's not gonna lead us to dissatisfaction, but to satisfaction, not to lack, but to joy. And so here's the problem. When those things are absent in my life, which they can be, and they are slow in returning, which has been the case, I get jumpy like the Israelites got jumpy, okay? In Exodus, where did Moses go? Moses goes up on the mountain. What was he going up there to do? He was going up up there to get a fax. I'm just kidding. He was going up there to get the Ten Commandments. They didn't have fax machines. The people down below, what should we do? Hey, Aaron, what should we do? Seems like a good time to have a, 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 a class in metallurgy. Everybody melt down their jewels, build a golden calf. I don't know when Moses is coming back. We've got to worship something. What do you do? Where do you go when God is slow in answering prayer? When you sing things like today of the joy of the Lord is my strength, and it isn't. Do we wait patiently on the Lord? I don't. I run to the next best thing. I run to good enough. And then I get sick. I get disappointed. I get sad. I get angry. I get ashamed. And then I run further and further and further and further. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as, long, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. It is possible, just possible, friends, that God knows what he is talking about and we don't. And that maybe, just maybe, we've been duped into believing lies. Lies about ourselves. Lies about what this world can ultimately offer us. Lies about the ways that we can be satisfied apart from God. It is just, just possible that we've missed something. And that causes me to wince. Because I like knowing what's going on. And I like being in control. And I like being the one calling the shots. So what does this have to do with hospitality? It means that God alone is the one that offers us care and offers us satisfaction. You and I can get to crisis moments in our life where we are far, far, far off the road our neighbors can get to places in their lives where they are far, far, far off the road. Hospitality is a means, not an end. It is a means, not an end. It's not entertainment like throwing a party. It's not an industry like hotel and restaurant management where you pay the professionals to take care of our dirty work. It is a way of life where we have been fed and clothed and nourished and nurtured by God and we are offered, offering our neighbors a chance to come and experience that through us. Hospitality at its core is an overflow of the expression of the satisfaction that we have invite, been invited to taste and see and experience. But we are isolated, exhausted, alone people. So what does it cost? What does it cost to get this satisfaction that Isaiah is speaking about here? Verses 10 and 11 give us a clue to that. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I have purposed it and shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. Friends, here's the bottom line. The word that he declared here in this prophecy before the cross was that there is a time coming when every single thing that he has said will happen will happen. And it is not going to not happen. What we see most poignantly and clearly in the resurrection is the word of God, the living word, Jesus, the faithful son of David, the rightful heir to the throne. He is the one that came. He is the one that did the work. And he is the one that did not return with his hands empty to the father, but rather said, look, look at the bounty that I've brought. They're mine. They're mine
all of this text speaks of abundance. In the ancient Near East, water was life. When the drought came, droughts were death. Water was life. And the water comes and the snow comes and the earth is watered. It, does not, it, it, brings, forth and, uh, it brings forth sprouts. Um, it br- gives seed to the sower and, and bread to the eater. So, all, so also this is what happens when God's word comes. Abundance follows. This is not some sort of name it and claim it prosperity garbage. This is the truth of the gospel, that when God's word comes, abundance follows. Where is the abundance? The abundance is in Jesus. And he has given himself. In John 4, he has said, I am the water that if you drink of me, you will never thirst. If you drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. In John 7, Jesus stands up at the Feast of Booths and said, anyone is thirsty, come to me and let him drink. And out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Just a chapter earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus told the Pharisees who were dumbfounded to this expression, he said, I alone, I am the bread of life. Satisfaction is in Christ cannot be found apart from Christ and is sure that what Jesus has said he will accomplish, he will in fact do. How can we begin to talk about hospitality, this way of life, this way of giving of ourselves for the sake of another when so many of us are just trying to survive? Scott Sauls in his book, Befriend, says this. He says, shame, the disquieting, vague sense that there's something deeply wrong with us, that we're not enough, keeps us preoccupied with ourselves and inattentive to the needs of others. It tells us that, that we have to fix ourselves before we can serve others, to clean up messy cells before we can be any good to friends and neighbors and especially to the poor, lonely, oppressed, and people on the margins. Charity starts at home, we tell ourselves. If something isn't done about us first, then we'll never be able to care effectively for others. If we don't get healthy, our ability to invest in anyone besides ourselves will be limited. The problem is we get paralyzed there because we can't ever seem to get it together. He goes on and he says this. We must become convinced that love has to be a person to us before it can become a verb. Love has to be a person for us before it can become a verb. God's not asking you to add one more thing to your already busy life. God is asking him, do you trust him to change your life? Do you trust him to let him reorder your priorities, to reshape your life and your commitments, to reorder and reshape your loves from top to bottom? Do you trust him enough to do that? And do you believe him that that leads to satisfaction rather than taking you away from satisfaction? That leads you to life rather than taking you away from life? That leads you to flourishing and to what it means to be human rather than taking you away from it? Do you believe that? God demonstrated that in sending Jesus to give up everything so that he may give us everything. My word will not return void. Do you know what that means? That means that my son will go to the cross and die. He'll bear the guilt and the shame of your sin and mine. He'll see the only tomb 
that any of us would ever experience. He'll rise conquering the death. He'll, he'll rise conquering sin and death. He'll rise and he'll send to heaven. And he'll send his spirit to dwell within us. How are you doing? How are you doing? If you say, I'm still not satisfied, that's okay. What are you going to do about it? You know, I've realized I've asked this question before. I was uh, with some friends uh, one time, and we were asking ourselves, um, how many of us have good, deep, solid relationships where we can actually um, bring like the, the, the disjointed parts of our lives, the ways that things aren't working, and talk about the deep and scary stuff that we're ashamed to talk about? How many of us have that one other friend? Do you realize that in the whole room of my friends that were sitting there, only half of us could say that we honestly had that friend in, a lo- in, in, in the same church that we were all a part of? So I've realized that when I've asked, when I've said, what are you going to do about it? Who are you going to talk to about it? One of the problems is many of us don't have anybody. You say, well, thanks, pastor. I feel, I feel more alone now than I did at the beginning of your sermon. What am I going to do about it? I don't know. So maybe that's a symptom too. Maybe that's an indication that we need help as a group. Maybe that's an indication that we actually need one another and need to start figuring out ways that we can create time and space to lean on one another because we're actually really isolated and really alone. Are you satisfied? Is that good enough? Do we want that? Is that how we want just to live lives, as Thoreau called it, lives of quiet desperation? I don't want that. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. From a lexical range of the word abundant, that doesn't translate to quiet desperation. So what are we going to do? That's what I want to explore. How do we find ways? How do we create time? How do we create space? How do we find ways to find the marginalized among us? And bring them into a place of warmth and care where needs are, are, are met and, and, and people are listened to? How do we find those that are at the margins of our neighborhoods? How do we find those that are at the margins of the world? Those that don't yet know that Jesus gave his life for them. They all sat in, in a seminary classroom. And it wasn't the, uh, the doe-eyed um, Master of Divinity students sitting there um, looking um, at, at all the ways that they're going to change the world in the church. No, 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 no. This was a seminary class for people that had been in the ministry for some time. They no longer have that doe-eyed look of how am I going to change the world. They have that beleaguered look of what in the world did I get myself into? They sat around the class and the professor got up and said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you what I think is the key for the gospel in the West in the 21st century. All right, this is what we paid our tuition money for right here. Laptops fly open. Word documents are opened. Outline mode turned on. We're ready to go. For the 40 and up crowd, pens came out, paper came out. 
So here it is. Here's the one thing that's going to be the key to evangelism in the 21st century in the West. Hospitality. Laptop shut. Pen goes down. What? In a world that's so incredibly isolated, one of the most countercultural, most um, impactful things that we can do is live out of a place where we are enjoying God, enjoying God's family, and living as if the Savior lives and inviting others in who aren't there yet to get helped along the way. To live as if the Savior lives, we live to throw parties. When's the last time, by the way, you went for, to a party just because you felt like it? I'm not talking about um, just to have something to do. I mean, a party was thrown just because it felt like the right thing to do. And when was the last time you were at that party with a bunch of people from your church? Just because. Good beverage, good food, laughter, conversation. This is the dance of redemption. God's not inviting us in to go through the doldrums of life in quiet desperation, but to laugh, to cry together, to feast together, to do life together out of an overflow of the life that we have in him. That's what I want to explore, and that's what I'm praying, and I want you to pray that God, by his spirit, would help us do together. Let's pray.